Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Good morning. Man, that sounded good. I, uh, I had someone complain one time, this has been years ago, uh, that the singing was too loud. And I'm just like, it's not possible. I, I'm, I'm not even joking. I would love it if somehow we caused structural damage to the building with our singing. And I know some of you would be like, I'd be right out. Well, I, just, I just love it. I love it when, you know, these guys have mics on stage and they're still being drowned out by the, by the people in the room. It's just, it's just beautiful. So, especially when we're drowning out Travis. But, no, just kidding. We're grateful to have every, every one of them. They're doing an awesome job. Um, I, I have a little reveal up here to, uh, to show you. I don't know if some of you will recall this. Some, for some of you, this is going to bring up bad memories. Are you ready? This could, be, this could be negative, but I just wanted you to... How, how many of you remember this? Um, I, I found one. There's one remaining. For those of you that aren't aware, these are our old auditorium chair, and they are incredibly uncomfortable. Many of you have lost feeling in your hindquarters by sitting on these during a long sermon. Not by me, but by someone, I'm sure. But this one is the one that we have left, and I want to use it to represent something. I want to make a confession to the church this morning. Now, this, I'm going to tell you this is a safe confession to make. Some of you are like, uh-oh, I'm nervous now. I don't know. It's safe, but it's something I do feel terrible, terrible about. When I was 11, maybe 12 years old, a friend of mine had a BB gun, and they were all inside doing something, and I thought, well, this is my chance. You know, everybody's fighting over it, but this is my chance to use it. So I, I went outside, you know, had the BBs in it. I like, you know, it's one of those pump action ones where it, the more you pump it up, the harder it shoots. And I thought, well, what am I going to shoot at? True story. It's a true story. I was outside, and on top of a telephone pole, there's this little bird just sitting right on top of the telephone pole. <laughs> Evidently, I don't need to confess what happened. Because I thought, there's no way. There's no possible way that from here, with this distance, I'm no, like, you know, Annie Oakley. I don't, I'm just, just going to aim at it, but I'm not going to hit it. Turns out, I'm a really good shot. <laughs> And that poor bird fell right off the telephone pole, right to the ground, dead as a doornail. Uh, I didn't try to resuscitate it. I actually didn't even check for vitals. I'm just pretty sure it was dead, BB and, and the bird. And I immediately, just this, this wave of horror came over me because I hadn't intended to do this. Uh, and now I didn't know what to do. Uh, I just kind of scooted the bird off to the side where no one could see it. And I went back inside. And this is true. I have not gone hunting one time in my life since then. Never went hunting. It was just, I felt so terrible. And this is also true. Sometimes when I'm just sitting there by myself late at night, I think about this poor little bird <laughs> that I killed. And I know some of you are like, ah, oh, Patrick, you're very soft-hearted. That's very sweet. And I'm just telling you one that I feel comfortable confessing, not one that you guys would be horrified to hear. But I'm guessing that everybody can associate with the experience of feeling guilty. 
We can all, we've all felt that. You've all, felt, you've all sat in this chair. And so I imagine if we were to bring everybody up here, we could all put you in this chair and you could all confess something. And maybe some of it would get a little wild, which is why we just don't invite anybody on stage and we would have to edit some of your confessions. But I'm, I'm assuming that we could all find something that we feel guilty about. Maybe sitting in your chair right now this morning, there's something that you feel some sense of guilt about. Um, so who's next? Anybody want to go next? Yeah, I bet. Rachel's ready to go. All right, a couple of you. That Very good. You haven't lived long enough to commit enough sins yet. I felt good to get off my chest. I really feel a lot better now. Okay, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go. Let's, uh, let's dip our, our toe into the shallow end of guilt because we're going to try to experience that emotion. And I know some of you are like, I don't need any help, but just bear with me this morning. Let's say a parent on your, your child's soccer team from last year texts you out of the blue and asks if you happen to be free this coming Saturday uh, to help them unload a U-Haul. And you're just like, why would they ask me? And do they not have other friends? And you do not want to give up your Saturday morning to do that. So you text back and you say, Sorry, my kid's been sick. Now, your kid has been sick, but it was a couple weeks ago. And you're kind of stretching the truth there. You're not really stretching the truth. It's, a, it's, a, it's beyond stretching, but I'm imagining that many of you have done this sort of thing. And so, yeah, their, their kid is currently doing just fine. In fact, they could help unload the U-Haul themselves, but you're looking for some reasonable way to get out of this request that somebody's asked of you. And that feels fine. You text them back and they're like, okay, sorry to hear that. I hope they get better soon. But the thing you forgot is later on that afternoon, as you're dropping your child off to a mutual friend's birthday, there they are and your kid is looking as healthy as ever and you you feel guilt and you don't know how to get out of that you don't know how to explain that maybe you go away feeling guilty that's the shallow end of guilt or or how about this you're in a crowded parking lot maybe at a local target and you open your door a little too fast a little too hard and a little too wide and you hit the car next to you they were parked a little close to the line but you hit it pretty good i mean there's a there's a decent sized dent in it and there's a scratch and you tried licking your finger and rubbing it to see if it would come out or see if you could do something and it's not working and then you look and you see uh oh this is a mercedes s class this looks pretty new this is bad news and so you kind of glance around to see if anybody saw you and then you go to a different target but as you're leaving you see in the rearview mirror somebody looking at you and it looks like they're writing something down. Are they writing down your license plate? And you just feel guilt. You just feel this sense of guilt. And, and maybe for other people, it's a bad parenting move that's going to put your child in therapy in the future. Or maybe some of you, it's a truth. It's a true thing. It just didn't need to be spoken and it damaged the relationship. Uh, and it's just not, this isn't even to mention all the things that we feel guilty about that we don't need to. We've got plenty of those, parental guilt, right? You know, I'm not doing enough or I'm doing too much. Psychologically speaking, and I don't know if this is true because I'm not a psychologist, but I think guilt is one of the most unpleasant emotions. Like, like even other emotions like anger. Sometimes we just feel anger and it feels good to feel angry. Sometimes people feel good when they feel sad and they shed a few tears. But guilt, there's nothing, nothing about that feels good. It's just unpleasant, period. I mean, how many literary works are about guilt? How many books are written about guilt? Uh, how about, uh, or, or, or plays, Macbeth, right? Where Lady Macbeth has that famous line where she's trying to scrub her hands clean and she can't get it clean because she's committed a sin. 
And she, there's no way to alleviate that guilt or the telltale heart or crime and punishment. Or how about um, maybe none of those. Maybe, maybe it's Spider-Man where Peter Parker could have stopped the criminal that later killed his Uncle Ben. But he didn't. He didn't think it was his responsibility. But then he remembered the words his Uncle Ben spoke to him. With great power comes great responsibility. And that guilt hanging over his head because there's no way to alleviate it. There's no way to resolve it. Now, let's wade into the deeper end of guilt. That's the, that's the shallow end of guilt. And some of you are like, that's the shallow end? What's the deep end? The deep end is when you experience guilt, and there's just no way to deal with it. There's nothing you can do. You can't talk yourself out of it. Um, in fact, some guilt is not just a one-time thing. It has ripple effects. Like if you break someone's trust by telling a lie, sometimes they lose trust in you. But if it's bad enough, sometimes you cause that person to lose the ability to trust in people because of something you've done. That's heavy. That's heavy guilt. Um, Sometimes hurt and wounds, they just are so deep that something that you've done causes someone just to to exist and move throughout the world with that same hurt and and causing more hurt in the world. That's heavy. Now, we try to deal with guilt in a couple different ways. Some of us try to deal with guilt by adjusting our thinking about guilt, like, like justification. This is, this is the word we would use to talk about it. Maybe if I had just adjust the settings on the chair, you know, if this were an office chair and you could just pick some stuff up and move things around, um, you, could, you could say, well, okay, my kid was sick and I don't know what the, I'm not the CDC, I don't know how long they're, they're actually going to be. And then, of course, then you start thinking, oh yeah, but I did take them to a party. Or, and, and maybe you start thinking, well, what parent texts some other random parent from soccer? Why would they even do that? Like, that's not my fault. They're being weird. They're breaking the social contract, not me. I mean, that's their problem. And so we try to adjust our thinking to, to, to drive away guilt. Who drives a brand new Mercedes to Target. I mean, they're asking for it, right? And if they can afford a new Mercedes, then they can afford to get it fixed. It's not my problem. It's their problem. And we adjust our thinking, but at the end of the day, that doesn't really work. Because when we clear out all the other thoughts and when we stop scrolling on Facebook or social media and we just sit down and we're alone with our our own mental uh, problems, then that guilt starts to wash back over because we know that there's something that we probably should have done differently. Some people try to deal with guilt by just getting rid of the standard altogether, just doing away with any sort of standard. Some people leave church to avoid feeling guilty. In fact, I can't tell you how often I've heard something along the lines of, why would I go to church just to make, let some preacher make me feel guilty? Why would I do that? I don't want to expose myself. And, and it's true, there are some churches that market in guilt, and I don't think we're one of those, but... I I certainly hope not, but sometimes people have had such bad church hurt that something that happened to them when they were a child or when they were a teenager or something that happened to their parents comes back when they go to any sort of church and they hear certain familiar phrases or ideas from people at church because that church wound is so deep. So sometimes people feel like if I change the standard, it'll, it'll, it'll go away. But the problem is the experience of guilt, it cuts, it cuts across cultures and, and religions and beliefs. I, I found out this this week, even atheists feel guilt. So it's not just people who believe in God or who believe in some objective standard. People who deny that there's an objective standard even feel guilt. Now, sometimes they explain, well, yeah, but I just, because I live in a culture that, you know, whatever. But 
Devorah Baum wrote an article about guilt that I read this week that I thought was interesting. Um, she wrote in it, religion often gets the blame for framing humans as sinners. And if we could just do away with the religion and that framing of us as bad people, then we'd be better, right? But she goes on to write, the secular effort to release us from guilt hasn't offered any relief. People don't feel better when they move away from some objective standard. It doesn't solve the problem. And in fact, in all those literary works that I just quoted you, like Lady Macbeth, all those people, they go crazy with guilt. It drives them mad. That's the point of those stories. What do we do with guilt that can't be resolved? Welcome to church this morning. <laughs> what do we do with guilt that can't be resolved? We're in our uh, Torah Together series. That's what we've been doing. And I am I'm just certain that some of you have kind of fallen off the reading, and I understand that is okay. Some of you got into the middle of Leviticus, and you're just like, I don't, this is wild. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. I'm zoning out, and I'm just kind of done. And that's all right. We're going to get you caught up to speed throughout this sermon, because it's some pretty foreign stuff. It can be a struggle. And if you've been struggling, particularly with Leviticus, I'm going to give you a, a tool that I think will help as you read through this. Um, one of the things that you need to know about any writing in Scripture, and this is certainly true of Leviticus, is that the way that they wrote is vastly different than the way we write. And I don't even mean like the language. I mean their approach to writing. We like to put stuff in the headline. That's where we put in the thesis statement, in a report, in the headline. Did you know Washington Post did a survey? 60% of people that claim to have read an article literally only read the headline. Did you know that? So when people were like, oh, I was reading the other day that XYZ, they didn't actually read the article. They read the headline. That's I've done that. I certainly have done that. So we like to read the headline because we want the relevant information to be there. But that's not exactly what uh, Hebrew writers did. They like to bury the headline right in the middle of the text, which forced you to engage with the text, which I think is pretty brilliant. Um, we like to speed read. How many of you listen to your podcasts at 1.5 or 1.75 or 2 or your audiobooks? You're like, I need to get through this thing, right? If there was a way to learn speed reading, we value speed reading. When, we, when I was in second grade, I wanted to be the fastest reader in class. My reading comprehension was terrible, but I was pretty quick. We value the reading, the, the quickness of it, but that's not what Hebrew writing did. They carefully tucked the information in the middle, and they, it encouraged reading and rereading and memorizing. So, so I want to give you an example of this. And in honor of Valentine's Day last week, I hope you didn't forget, imagine a love letter. I want you to imagine a love letter that Jane uh, or John wrote to Jane. Now, if you read through this, you'll notice pretty quickly a couple things begin to correspond. And this is an example of how Hebrew people wrote. Um, so you'll notice the top line, dearest Jane and your beloved John. They correspond. You've got an intro and an outro. Well, that's pretty normal. But notice the second line and then the next to last line. I'm so glad you're in my life. My life is complete with you. Notice the common theme. There's a common theme there. And then the third line, you are my world, the world is better because of you. And then right in the middle would be the main point, I love you. That's how Hebrew writers wrote. That's how they composed many scriptures. And sometimes you'll see these little structures in the middle of a passage. And you'll start to notice, how many of you noticed, what, didn't they already say this? Yeah, often they already said it because they're building this little literary sandwich, and the point is right in the middle of the text that you're reading. So here's a breakdown of Leviticus in the same way. At the very beginning, you have these rituals in, in the sacrifices, and at the very end, you have these rituals 
and, and feasts. And then you have information about the priests at the, the next, and then you've got information about the qualifications for the priests, and very strange stuff in there. Then you've got expectations for holiness and purity, moral purity. And then right in the middle of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. What the author is trying to tell us is that this is the headline. This is the most important thing. Everything is building up to this and building away from this. And in fact, this is kind of cool. In the Torah, there's five books in the Torah. Leviticus is the very middle of the book. Uh, of the books, and then the Day of Atonement is the middle of the middle of Leviticus. So it's right, it's right in the middle of everything. So what's so important about the Day of Atonement? Well, the Day of Atonement is all about guilt. It's all about that experience of guilt and what humans do. Because humans do some really dumb things when we feel guilty, don't we? Don't, have you ever tried to avoid feeling guilty by avoiding the person that you think might make you feel guilty? Have you ever tried to avoid feeling guilty by numbing the guilt with something, whether it be food or entertainment or anything? You've tried to avoid the feeling. We don't do smart things with guilt. We rarely face it. But how do you deal with guilt? And this is something that I think God is like telling the people. God is telling the people, uh, his people, to say, I, we need to deal with this. And I'm going to create this perfect opportunity for how you deal with guilt. So we're going to look at that. And we're going to see what that could mean for us. Um, one of the ironic tragedies of Christianity is that Christians claim to have a solution for sin. But we also like to pretend we don't really have sin. Isn't that weird that we do that? We're like, yes, Jesus forgives all our sins, but I don't really have any, at least that I'm going to share with you or be honest about or open about. I'm going to pretend that I've got my life together. And it's a little bit of a tragic irony is that we say, yeah, we've got this, we've got this solution to the deepest need, the deepest problem in our life, but we're going to pretend like it's not a problem in our life. It's such a strange thing for us to do. Our lives can be arranged in such a way that we can maintain that illusion to some degree. We, we keep people distant enough and we keep the social media feed looking positive enough that when something bad happens, it can really feel scandalous. Like sometimes that's the, that's the reason we get so into gossip is because we thought they had it so together. Turns out they're just like the rest of us. Like, because they were able to create an illusion of perfection or illusion of, of goodness or depth. And it turns out, oh, they're not so together. And sometimes gossip feels good because we're like, oh, it's not just me. That's the secret thought of gossip. It's not just me. Because we relate to what's going on. But it was very different in ancient Israel. Imagine you're an ancient Hebrew citizen, right? And we can't, there's no social media feed to create the illusion of perfection. Every time you mess up morally or otherwise, you have got to go out to your barn and you've got to select the best looking sheep and you've got to put a little leash on that sheep and then you've got to walk that guy all the way through all the tents right into the center of town where the tabernacle was. You've got to walk by all your friends and all your neighbors with this great-looking sheep to the tabernacle. And you can just imagine people were probably outside their tent. They're like, hey, hey Patrick, this is a really primo-looking sheep there. You must have messed up pretty bad this week. Oh, you know, it's been a day. <laughs> I, you, know. you couldn't hide it. You couldn't hide the fact that you had messed up because you were dragging evidence of your sin behind you on a leash. 
Now, we think that that might be or feel humiliating, but I think that there's actually an advantage to it. There's an advantage to, and notice this, actually, this is interesting too. You're, you're dragging or, or pulling this poor sheep along through town. I mean, in fact, in Numbers, you're going to see this, which I know Numbers, if, if you thought Leviticus was tough, you need to really buckle down for Numbers. But Numbers is going to tell you how the camp was arranged. And so you had to walk from your tent with your sheep from outside of camp where the, the, the herds were right into the middle of, of camp. And then you had to bring your sheep or your lamb or your whatever, uh, <clears throat> your, your uh, goat. But look at what Leviticus 4.32 says. This is just one of the examples of, of, of the offerings. If someone brings a lamb as their sin offering, another word for that would be purity offering, they are to bring a female without defect. Notice they, the person who brought the offering, they are to lay their hand on its head and they are to slaughter it for a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. If I felt super bad about killing that poor little bird on the telephone pole, how would it feel every time you were faced with a moral dilemma that at least weighing on you in the back of your mind is that you were going to have to place your hands on the head of one of your parents' sheep? and cut that thing's throat. Do you think that would give you pause? You know, I don't know if this is worth it. I'm not sure that I really want to do that. Can you imagine the weight, the gravity of sin would be at least more present, at least more tangible? Sin had serious stakes, but sacrifice meant resolution. You could deal with that guilt and you could say, I messed up, here's the lamb, here's the offering, and then it was killed, it was burnt, it, the, the remains were left for the priests, and you could walk away guilt-free. So there was something adva advantageous to the, 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 the concrete nature of this transaction. But <laughs> I, I, can think of, I can think of this very specific um, interaction I had with an adult I was 16 or 17. My mom's not here today, so I, I feel a little better confessing some of these things because she's out of town. Oh, don't listen online, mom, please. Uh, when I was 16 or 17, I had an adult confront me with an obvious lie. I mean, it was clear that I had lied. It was clear to everybody within a 10-mile radius that I had lied. And they confronted me, and they said, Patrick, here's your opportunity to fess up and come clean. And do you know what I did? I doubled down. And then I doubled down again until I was in a hole so deep, I thought, there's just no way I can get out of it. And then I didn't see that person for 25 years. But often when I was laying in bed at night, I would think, you know what would feel good? Just to email them and say, you know what? I did lie. I'm really sorry. You were right. I, I lied. It would feel good to do that. But they died of cancer. What do I do with that unresolved guilt? I can't go to them. I can't apologize. I don't know what damage I really caused. I was just a dumb teenager. and I wouldn't have even gotten in that much trouble. I, w I would have gotten in more trouble for double and tripling and quadrupling down on the lie than the actual infraction. <laughs> but they're no longer around to apologize to and to say, hey, I'm really sorry. You were right. Thanks for, thanks for trying to bring me back to, to, to normal. I, I I appreciate that. I think about it all the time, but, but they're gone. What, what do you do with that sort of guilt? There's, there's nowhere to go with that. H how do you handle that sort of guilt? I wonder 
I just wonder what other effects it had on them and the choices that they made and the things that they did. Did they not try to confront other people because <laughs> they were like, well, it really doesn't work. I'm not very convincing. Sin is, is never just this tidy mess, mess that we can just you know, sweep up, vacuum up. It's never that. And that's one of the things that God is trying to help his people see in Leviticus. Sin isn't this tidy thing. It's this messy, awful, bloody thing. And it's so hard to tell people that, that these choices have these ripple effects in their lives, but it's this awful thing. It's not this little, this little issue that you can just tidy up real quick. It, it causes problems. It's like it's, it, sin is always like knocking over that first domino. There's always more dominoes to fall. Sin is always like pouring a little toxic waste into the water supply. And, and here's the truth. This is not a truth that you're interested in hearing, but it's true. Private sin. Private sin. Private sin always causes public damage. That's one of the realities that God was trying to get his people to see through Leviticus. Private sin, there's no such thing. It causes public damage. Now some of you are like, uh-oh, starting to feel that weight of guilt. Patrick, I don't like this at all. Why did I come to church today? But God has a plan for all that public damage, all that collective junk that humans create. Look at Leviticus 16, 16. This is right in the middle of chapter 16, which is about the Day of Atonement. Look what the purpose of the Day of Atonement is. In this way, he, the high priest Aaron in this case, will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been, whatever they've been. Aaron's going to go in and he's going to do what it takes to resolve all of it, whatever their sins have been. This is how it worked. One time a year, just one time a year, and it was only in one place, and it could only be one person under very specific circumstances. They could go into this one room in the temple, and it was called the Holy of Holy, the holiest place. And not the holiest place, it was called the most holy place. It was the epicenter of God's presence in the tabernacle. It was the, and, and you had to be under the right conditions, and Aaron had to put on the right outfit, and he had to offer the right sacrifices. And then he would go through this curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place, and he would sprinkle blood on the ark. You remember, you remember the Ark of the Covenant? I, I just think of Indiana Jones. That's the way that I think about it. I don't know how many of you saw that movie, but I was pretty horrified when the Nazis opened the Ark at the end of the movie and their faces melted off. That's been my vision of holiness. Thank you, uh, George Lucas. That's where it came from uh, for me. But this was the very, the most holy place you could not mess up. There's a tradition, and it's actually probably not true. I was trying to do a little research on it this, this week, where, where they, someone claimed that the high priest, because nobody else could go in the Holy of Holies, so that I heard they would tie a rope around his ankle in case he messed up in there and God struck him dead like he did with Nadab and Abihu uh, earlier in chapter 10. You remember that? So nobody else could go in there and get the body so that they had left the rope on there so that they could pull the body out because he had messed up. Now, it turns out that that's probably not true, but you can imagine the stakes of going into that room and offering atonement for the people, whatever sins they had committed. It was incredibly important. In fact, for Aaron, it probably felt like diffusing a bomb to go into that room and be like, okay, I have the blood of the bull, I have the blood of the goat, make sure I sprinkle it, make sure that I have to offer the incense because they created this cloud and the cloud was supposed to obscure the, 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 the reality of God and, the, and just all kinds of wild things. It was a very strange and unique ceremony. Aaron washes himself. He puts on linen, not the cool garments the priests usually get to wear, but these humble white garments. 
He offers sacrifices for himself and for his family. And by the way, because the text says that he has to offer sacrifices for his family, they made provision just in case his wife happened to die right before he went into the Holy of Holies. So they had a backup wife ready for him because the text said to make sure you offer sacrifices for your family. And they're like, well, he's got to have a family. And if his wife dies, he doesn't have a family. This is true. This is in the Talmud where they did this. It was intense. So you can imagine Aaron or the high priest was incredibly cautious and nervous. So he, he, he takes this bowl of blood. He fills the Holy of Holies with smoke so that he can't see anything. Remember, you're not supposed to look, on, look, look at God. He goes in through the curtain. He spreads blood on the cover of the ark. Then he takes this other goat. There's two goats. He takes this other goat, and he walks out, out of there, and he puts his hand on this goat's head, and he confesses all the sins of the whole nation. I'm assuming he just said, forgive us for all our sins, rather than itemizing them, because it would have taken a long time, right? It's like how I often, when I was a kid, I, when I would ask God for forgiveness, I would just sort of generalize versus itemize, because it would just take too long. Even when you're a kid, you got enough stuff uh, to cover. And then they would take this goat, and they would give it to this guy, and they would walk it off into the distance, and they would send that goat off into the wilderness with all the sins of all the people on its head. And I don't know what it was like, but the whole nation would have been around this uh, ceremony. And what would it have felt like to know that you've got secret guilt, like weighing on you? Man, I wish I hadn't lied to that guy. They did this once a year. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. I wonder about all the stuff that I am not even aware that I did that I did. What would it feel like to take all that guilt, put it on a goat, and you're like, how was a goat? Yeah, hang on, we'll get there. Put it on a goat and then watch that goat disappear into the distance. Do you think that people would have felt like a little bit of relief? It's like, oh, yeah, fresh start. It's like opening up the windows and, and, and clearing out all the dust and cobwebs from the winter in the spring. You know, it feels like cleaning out the car. I went and took my son and two neighbor boys to clean out my car yesterday, and I made the mistake of buying them snacks right before we did it. So we're vacuuming out the car, and while we're vacuuming, they're repolluting the car with chips and popcorn and everything. And so I have chips and popcorn in my car right after vacuuming it. And that's the problem that the Hebrew people ran into. They could do this ceremony and they could ship off all their sins into the wilderness once a year, but then over the course of the year, they would mess up again and they would, they would do something and they would lie and then that guilt would... And I, I wonder if they just longed for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. I wonder if they longed for that day so that they could feel that sense of relief and that weightlessness once again because they have to do this every single year because we keep messing up every single year. I wish there was a way to just clean my car out once and never have to clean it out again. But alas. So just imagine, you've got this, this, this moral system reboot, this spiritual spring cleaning, but... But it doesn't solve the problem because you're going to have to do it again next year. You're going to have to hope the, the high priest gets it just right. And you're going to have to hope that God accepts and God forgives and God gives grace. All right. With all that in mind, we're going to do something that is a little unusual for me to do. And I'm going to read a little longer chunk of text. I'm going to try to point out some things that are crucially important to us. But these truths that we're going to read are so liberating. They are life-changing. 
But it is important that we understand what the Hebrew people were dealing with as we read these texts to understand what we're being told about the same thing, about our guilt, about our sin, about our sinfulness. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to take, uh, take them out or open them up, turn them on, and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. It'll be on the screen as well. We're going to read a section out of Hebrews 9 and just a little bit about Hebrews 10. This is good stuff, stuff you've read before, but I just want you to see it in light of what God was doing with the Hebrew people and then what God was eventually planning on doing for everyone, everywhere, for all time. Hebrews 9.1. Now the first covenant, that's the covenant that we're reading about in the Torah, the first covenant had regulations for worship. Yes, it did. It had a lot. And it also had an earthly sanctuary. That's that ta tabernacle that we were reading about. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room, there was the lampstand, the table, and consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Now, I imagine the readers are like, yeah, 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 we know. But he, he's, he's recalling Leviticus for an important reason. Now, behind a second curtain, verse 3, was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had a golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna. It contained Aaron's staff that had budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. I like that little tidbit because you're like, you, you did discuss them. You spent several verses on that. Well, okay, fine, whatever. But he's not going into too much detail. Okay, whatever. Verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, interceding for the people with God. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance, the things that they didn't even realize they had done wrong. There was a plan to deal with those. Now, the Holy Spirit was showing that by this, the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. Now, he's telling us that all of that was an illustration for something that we're about to reveal. Verse 9, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. It couldn't deal with the problem. It couldn't resolve it because I would imagine, like many of you, many of the people in the crowd watching that scapegoat, which is, by the way, where we get the term, watching that scapegoat go off into the distance are thinking, I'm not sure that a goat can really take care of all my sins. I'm not sure that this is the, the permanent solution. I would imagine they were thinking that. I'm not sure that a bull or a lamb, I'm not, I, don't, I just don't see, I'm not sure that that really takes care of it and just letting that thing go into the distance. They were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 11, but when Christ came, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. This is really important. The greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands. That is to say, not part of this creation. And the language is very careful. This is the same exact language that Jesus himself used to describe his own body. He, Jesus was saying, I am the perfect tabernacle. I am the holy of holies. I am the presence of God. I am the dwelling place of God. That's what Jesus was saying. 
He's saying that, that th this is who I am. I'm not made with human's hands. I'm, this is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, which people were like, yeah, there's no way that solves the problem. That can't, that can't solve the problem. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Listen to this line. Thus obtaining eternal redemption. Thus obtaining eternal redemption. For who? Everybody. But he goes on. Uh, Hebrews 10, 19. Let's jump down there. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to throw open those curtains of the most holy place and waltz in like we own the place, since we have that confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. With full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled clean, just like the, the blood of the, the ox and the goats, sprinkled clean to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What a beautiful reference to the, the ceremonies, but also a beautiful reference to baptism as well. To cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And what Jesus did through, th through the, his offering is he said, this chair doesn't exist anymore. You don't have to sit it anymore. I've forgiven you. It's done. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't kill the bird and I didn't tell that lie. I still did those things. But it's my fault if I sit in it. Because Jesus has already created a way for me to be forgiven and redeemed of that. But Patrick, you didn't sin against Jesus. You sinned against that person you told the lie to. That's the power of what Christ has done, is he has given us a way to get out of that guilt, to get out of that chair, to move on with our lives. But you know what? That full assurance is something that's so hard for us to just accept that we have that, that he has obtained redemption once for all. That is wild. As much as a relief it was to watch the high priest enter that tabernacle and, okay, whew, Sins are taken care of for another year. Goat disappear over the higher horizon. But that, that relief was temporary. This is something I don't know that I heard much growing up. And sometimes I st struggle believing it myself. And some of you are going to hear it in a way that you're like, nah, I don't know that I agree with that. That's all right. Let it sit with you. Let the Spirit convict you. We, we serve a God so powerful that he didn't just cleanse us of our past sins. He cleanses us, uh, us of every sin that we will ever commit. All our future sins. Your future sins don't have to weigh you down because of Christ. But you're like, well, but what if I do it on purpose? Well, let's talk about that. Let's deal with that. But your future problems, your future shortcomings, your future failures don't have to define you. You don't have to live in that. You have been given access to the most holy place through Christ. So powerful. Such a beautiful truth. Jesus, listen, Jesus was greater than Moses, is what we're told. Greater than Moses. He is the greater tabernacle. Hebrews says these things are just the shadow cast by the coming Christ. And that through Christ, we have this access to God that is unparalleled. But you know what a lot of us do? We just, we live in this guilt. 
that has already been dealt with. And, and, and I realize that some of you are like, well, yeah, but I don't know how to resolve it. I don't know how to get over it. I don't know how to get out from under it. Christ, you have been forgiven. If you're willing to accept that fact, if you're willing to repent, we're told that we have been forgiven. And, and the problem with that is that it, all, it sounds too good to be true. It's like, all right, I want good news, but I don't want super good news, okay? I just want okay news. I don't want really good news that Christ has taken me and he's put me right into the presence of God. I, and, and, and there's nothing that I did to allow that. I just have a relationship with Christ, that's too, too good a news. Forgiven forever, that's, that's too good a deal. I, I think I want to feel guilty for my sins and deal with it that way. That's never going to solve your problem. Sitting in this chair will never solve your problem. You have access to forgiveness through Christ. I was reading this book uh, called Whatever Happened to Sin, and it was written from a clinical psychologist's point of view where sin was more uh, culturally um, appropriate to talk about, even among non-Christians, where today, you know, you would, it would be weird if you were talking to a co-worker and you were talking about some non-believing co-worker about sin. Uh, but he was telling this story about uh, back in the 70s, there's this street preacher on the corner, and he wasn't really preaching anything. He was just standing on the corner, and as people walked by, he would just look at them, and he would point at them, and he would say, Guilty! Two guys walking by, he was just doing this. And nobody was like laughing at him. Nobody, they would just kind of duck their heads and move on. And two guys walking by, one of whom relayed this later to the author, just turned to each other and they're like, how did he know? <laughs> because we're all guilty. We're all guilty. Just because your sin isn't as bad as killing a little baby bird on top of a telephone pole, we're still all guilty. Or maybe it's much worse and you just feel, you start to break into a sweat even thinking about it. You just want to numb that guilt with something else. The only way to deal with our guilt forever is through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to sing a song in closing. I'm going to invite the praise team back on up. And uh, we're just going to, we're going to praise God for what he's done through Christ. So would you stand as we sing together?